This week, Ian is talking with Bran Crowley of Pittsville College in the United Kingdom about... Uh, no, 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 no. Try that one again. What? Oh, oh yeah, sorry. Uh, this week, Ian is talking with horror novelist Bram Stoker. Uh, Stoker? And also, no! Sorry, this isn't a chat about your time in Transylvania? You know, before the incident? No! Sorry, do you not listen to these interviews in advance? No, never. Who's the time to listen to academics harp on and on about conspiracy theories? I'm a busy man. I have stuff to do, you know, uh, playing Cult of the Lamb, eating pies. Sorry, I may be, be a bit fixated on this, but you've never listened to one of the interviews I recorded? Not a previous one, like one we did with Brian? Nope. Or any of the interviews with Aaron? Not at all. Not even Curtis? More like Kurt... no. Uh, but you always seem to have notes. I just make it up as I go along. It's amazing how speaking in generalities can get you anywhere in decent society. Well, uh, I'm... I'm actually lost for words. I'm stumped. Uh, sorry, what is the point of recording this wraparound? Only joking. Of course I listen to the interview. Oh, well, that is a relief. Or did I? There's only one way to find out by listening to this very special interview between our own Ian Denton and Byron Smiley. No! Uh, sorry, sorry. Flem Menteth and Cyan Murphy. Maybe it's Killian Murphy. Whatever, play that tune! The Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy, featuring Josh Addison and M. Denton. And welcome to the Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy. Here in Auckland, New Zealand, we are both Josh Edison and Dr. M. Dentith. Sometimes salt entity. At the same time. Mm, exactly. Uh, we're in different places tonight. Both mentally, spiritually, and physically. And emotionally, yeah. But basically because we only have a small bit of recording to do for reasons that will, will fairly quickly become apparent, and it seemed easier to do it online than any of that messing around, driving cars, travelling to other locations, being in, in different positions spatially. Who's got the time for that? Fighting trolls, unearthing mm. ancient treasures, and of course, being part of the conspiracy. Mm, why would anybody bother? No, because uh, this week we have the first of some... I think, uh, interviews that, that the good doctor well, recorded I mean, it's overseas. The second oh, it is, it is actually the second, yeah. yes, yes. We had the one with actually, Julia the one before. with Julia is the only one that was recorded overseas. Uh, both the, the both interviews which are in the can, which are coming up, which is Brian this week and Will Mittendorf in about a fortnight's time, they were recorded when I returned back from my trip to Amsterdam. And I was very, very jet-lagged for at least one of them. You can work out which one in retrospect. Mm, well, we shall have to see. But yes, today, M is talking to friend of the show, Brian L. Keeley. Someone that Josh has never, never, spoken, never spoken to, yep. has, no, has no history with. So Josh, mm. tell me, who is Brian L. Keeley? What I is did. Brian L. Keeley? And where is Brian L. Keeley at this very moment? There's literally no way of an, uh, knowing the answers to any of those questions. Uh, but maybe if we play the interview, things will slightly become uh, a little well, no, bit clearer. We kind of have to introduce who he is, what he is, what he does. And I think okay. maybe you could, you could go, Brian L. Keeley is famous for being... Uh, a, a, a philosopher of conspiracy theories, one of the, the very first writers of papers on the topic of the philosophy of conspiracy theories, which got us started on this whole thing, comes from Pitzer University, I think. It's a college. Pitzer College. Hey, he there doesn't come from there, he works yeah, well, there. Well, he works there, yes. yes. His, his, his words come to us from that environ. They were recorded in his office there, so you are correct mm. about that little yes. fact. Well, there we go. Anyway, there, there, there have been numerous interviews with Brian published on this podcast before. I, 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 I feel like I know Brian, despite never having any actual contact That's a very with presumptuous before, thing obviously. to say that you feel you know someone just by listening to interviews with him. I mm. mean, really, that's, that, that is a degree of arrogance, Joshua, that I did not think you had. Oh, well, now you know. So uh, if, we, if we play this interview, which, which I believe is largely a discussion between you and Brian on the merits of David Lynch films, uh, perhaps we'll all know him a little bit better by the time we're done. Well, 
maybe we will. And hopefully, you will. I mean, that's you as in the listeners, but also you, Josh. Right. So you, in the kind of global sense. The royal you. Sorry, I'm I'm, I'm just thinking about the royal we has to go through the royal you bend. Something like that. I don't know. Play that interview. Yes. So welcome once again to Brian Keeley, friend of the show, patron of the show, and occasional listener of the show. Brian, how are things in Sully, Ca- Sunny, Sully? I about to say Sully, California. How are things in Sully, California? If you know what's going on in Sully, California at this time, it actually is not sunny. So uh, that is uh, not Sully is or Sullied maybe. I don't know. It's uh, pretty overcast here today and. Uh, Unlike what you'd expect for Southern California, we have what's called June gloom, and uh, we are in full June gloom uh, territory here. It's uh, I haven't seen the sun in a couple of days, uh, which is you know kind of pleasant when you live in a desert. So uh, no no major complaints there. But uh, if I want the sun, I can head up into the mountains and maybe get up above the cloud cover there. Is it so, it's time to this. We should we should appeal to David Lynch in one of his daily weather forecasts. Yes, well, he did have a movie called The Inland, In, Inland Empire, and I am actually living in the Inland Empire, uh, which had nothing to do with the geography of the Inland Empire. Apparently, David Lynch just liked that name uh, for a region, so called it called his movie that. I mean, that explains a lot of David Lynch's o- over a truth be told. Likes a name, likes a theme, goes off on a tangent. Like we are right now talking about the weather in California when we should be talking about conspiracy theory theory. Now it's been it's been a bit of a conference season for both of us recently, but you managed to go to a conference in Miami I didn't get to go to. Tell me what was happening in Miami in March. So uh, Miami was the uh, second meeting that uh, friend of the show's uh, Joe Usinski put together. Uh, he Originally, this was interestingly, this was the conference that was scheduled to be in March of 2020. And as you recall, March of 2020 was a rather eventful time. Uh, I think it was like five days before the conference was supposed to happen. We finally had to cancel it because of COVID. Uh, So it was supposed to happen a couple of years ago. It was three years delayed. It uh, finally did come together. Uh, And like the previous uh, University of Miami meeting that uh, Joe uh, hosted, uh, it's an interdisciplinary conference. There were a number of philosophers there. Uh, Like I said, uh, you were invited, but were not able to make it at the last minute. Uh, But and also uh, uh, Julia Napolitano was supposed to be there and she was not able to make it the last minute. But uh, Martin Beaudry uh, was there. And that was the first chance that I got to meet Martin face to face. And also, uh, uh, how's it? Uh, Hogue, uh, I'm blanking on his first name. Um, Andrew, Andrew Hogue, uh, who's kind of does history, but also history with a kind of philosophically informed kind of history of conspiracy theories was there. Um, and a few people who were, you know, at least friendly to philosophy, but it was a lot of uh, folks that were, uh, coming from other areas, political science. We had a lot of political scientists, a couple of social scientists of different sorts, social psychologists there as well, um, and uh, also even a journalist. Uh, uh, Jesse Walker from Reason Magazine was there again, presenting a kind of history paper connected to the sorts of things that he is working on uh, and that come up in Reason Magazine. So it was a, a nicely interdisciplinary conference with a with a couple of philosophers and then a lot of other folks uh, that are doing other aspects of conspiracy theory theory. There was also when we discovered that Stephen Smallpage is a philosopher and not a political scientist like many of us had assumed. Yeah, he's he's definitely philosophy adjacent. I mean, he's somebody who does political philosophy. And as some folks may know, political philosophy occurs both in uh, political studies context as well as in the philosophical context. And, uh, you know, he lives at that at that intersection between the two. Terrible thing to live at an intersection. Traffic coming both ways all the time. So so what was the general tenor of feeling at Miami conference? Has COVID changed the nature of the debate about conspiracy theories? I think it was I mean, it's both COVID and the other thing. I think the, the original conference was in, what, 2018? I remember when the first one happened. Actually, my was it twenty eight? Well, so it's after my book, so it's mm-hmm. either twenty seventeen or twenty eighteen. 
so the, the two things that had happened since then, COVID being obviously one of them, but also the real kind of, you know, the, the Trump administration in, in the United States and the the kind of increase in uh, at least right wing uh, in the United States context, conspiracy theories, um, that was something that uh, seemed to have changed since the last time. At least it was much more on the table. We had a lot more uh, discussion of of. Uh, conspiracy theory in the popular media, uh, particularly as it comes out of uh, the Trump presidency and other things that happened during the Trump presidency, uh, including including COVID. Uh, and that was interesting to see because it was, there was kind of a political component to it that was stronger than I remember being there in 2017, where we had a lot of kind of historical stuff and lots of uh, you know work that was not so focused on the day-to-day of what we're dealing with uh, in the current time, but, you know, a little bit more kind of a bigger picture of of the longer term stretch of things. Uh, And, you know, whereas this conference seemed to be much more focused on, you know, what are the things that are kind of bubbling up in the news these days? uh, And that's important. And also, I think the other thing that's probably very different, uh, I don't remember quite as much in the way of non-U.S. centric uh, conspiracy theory talk uh, and dealing with examples from outside of the United States or at least outside of the English speaking world. Uh, whereas this one, we had people that were talking about conspiracy theories in Turkey, uh, looking at even things like non-English language conspiracy theories in the United States. Uh, Joe, Joe and his collaborators gave a paper on uh, uh, conspiracy theories as they're being discussed in the Spanish language media in Southern Florida and so forth. So there was a nice kind of kind of broadening out of the cultural context, which again, sometimes revolves back to Trump with the, the kind of growth of uh, the growth industry of, uh, of Trump style politics. So from Bolsonaro in Brazil to Erdogan in Turkey and uh, what we're seeing in Eastern Europe with Orban and others. So there was a lot kind of a broader uh, context of that discussion and more international context and not so Anglo-specific. Yeah, I remember in the lead up to the original date for the second conference back in 2020, before the world changed. And of course, the big events that had occurred kind of in the conspiracy landscape at that time were Russiagate, which I know Joe Yusinski has kind of poo-pooed. He thinks both sides kind of overplayed their cards on that. And the death of Jeffrey Epstein. And at the time, I thought those were going to be the big ticket items that would have been discussed back in 2020. And of course, between 2020 and the present day, there's been an insurrection at the Capitol in the United States, which really does change the tenor of the kind of discussion, because maybe Joe's right, and maybe both sides kind of overplayed their cards on the Russiagate stuff. But what Trump did subsequently really does seem to be a sea change, at least on some level, in the way that politicking in America goes down now. And of course, the other thing, of course, which is a retrospective thing, when you went to the conference in March, it looked like maybe Erdogan's time in power in Turkey was coming to a close. And it turns out that didn't happen. And of course, there are conspiracy theories about that election. Yes, that's true. And as well as the Ukraine uh, situation as well uh, was also something that came up in, at least in conversation. I don't recall there being any papers specifically about it, but uh, uh, the kind of former Soviet uh, tensions uh, also is another thing that seems to at least people were discussing over over coffee and over beers before and after. You also attended a conference in Amsterdam recently, which was organized by, let me just check my notes here, Julia Dutz, Melina Sapos, oh, and also myself. Yes, yes. It was good to see you again. Uh, since you weren't able to make it to Miami, it was good to see you in uh, in lovely Amsterdam as well. Uh, yeah, and, then, and that one, you know, being much more centrally focused on philosophy per se, we had a few non-philosophers there that actually kind of more or less just dropped in to... Uh, you know, give us some wisdom and to give us some feedback, which was which was useful. Uh, I believe we had a sociologist there as well as a social psychologist, but uh, but it was mostly that was mostly a philosophical affair. 
Yes, well, I mean, it was the second international conference on the philosophy of conspiracy theories, although, as you point out, we had Jan William von Preum and Jaron Harambam, who popped in to represent social psychology and sociology slash media studies. And, of course, we had a few other academics popping in and out throughout the time. How how was the conference from your perspective? I liked it quite a lot. Yeah, it was uh, it was. First of all, it was nice of the first one we had done was totally online and you can have some conversation online, but it's not quite as uh, dynamic as, as it is if you can actually kind of go out and have a beer with somebody afterwards and as well as have the follow up at the coffee session immediately following a talk. Uh, so, yeah, it was much I was very happy to see just how active everybody is and, and engaging with each other and just the sheer number of people that were there. Uh, you know, considering that you can actually get together, uh, you know, two dozen, three dozen people that are interested in specifically the philosophical aspects of conspiracy theories, that was heartening to see. Yeah, so it was actually quite nice to see that even though only a year had passed between the first conference and the second conference, there was enough new work to justify holding an entire conference one year later. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree. Now, you gave a paper at that conference and actually, it's the paper you also gave at Miami with the provocative title, Conspiracy Theorists Are Not the Problem, Conspiracy Liars Are. So I guess I have to ask, who's a conspiracy liar and how do we spot one? Well, uh, you know, sometimes it's just when their lips are moving. But um, <laughs> but yeah, I think the, the, the kind of starting point for this paper that I've been working on, it's really the only thing I've been able to get together in the last couple of months of uh, trying to get my teaching and administrative work done on the side. Uh, but yeah, the, the kind of got me started was there was a piece by a columnist here in, in Los Angeles at the LA Times, Elsie Granderson, had a, a very short opinion piece where he basically made the case that uh, when you look at somebody like Alex Jones, uh, the idea is that he claims that Alex Jones is no kind of theorist, that he's basically just a grifter, right? He's somebody who is uh, lying in support of uh, of a particular agenda that he uses to fundraise off of or to uh, back up, you know, give him something to say when he's not selling uh, various kinds of uh, health health related uh, snake oil that uh, that he can make available. Uh, and so I thought it was an interesting place to start because when I had thought about conspiracy theories in the past and thought about like what the genesis of conspiracy theories were. I had pointed out the role of of errant data, right? These the the bits, the little bits of data that just don't fit the standard story or the official story. So the idea being that that the starting point for conspiracy theories doesn't necessarily have to be data that doesn't fit the official story, and and that being you know kind of my genesis for conspiracy theories in some of my earlier work, and realizing that with people like Alex Jones, who gets called a conspiracy theorist. And I think Granderson is right to point out that there's something a little odd about calling somebody like Alex Jones a conspiracy theorist, because he doesn't really seem to be mostly motivated by the idea of trying to explain phenomenon as he has another agenda that he's trying to, you know, rabble rouse or uh, push a political agenda, get certain people elected to office, get certain policies elected in office, uh, that that's what's really motivating him. And if that's what's motivating you, then sometimes your starting points are just going to be stuff that you make up. Uh, and so I wanted to use this as an opportunity to kind of think through the starting point of what gets called conspiracy theories and point out that not only is it just kind of good faith, but errant data, but actual sometimes just made up data, right? Where somebody just simply says that such and such is the case uh, and then goes, okay, now let's fit that point. And, you know, that's one of the dots that needs to be connected that you're not so much connecting the dots in some dubious way, or and some of those dots are maybe false dots because they were badly collected or they're a result of mistake. But sometimes you can just make stuff up and then go, okay, well now, now explain how things are if such and such is the case and such and such is the case because I just made it up right here. Or somebody else that I know made it up, kind of, you know, put it out there and I'm, you know, in a bad faith sort of way, I'm just going to accept it as a data point that needs to be considered. Now, we're both fans of the podcast Knowledge Fight. And listeners, if you're not listening to Knowledge Fight and you're interested in the travails of one Alex Emmerich Jones, I'd recommend listening to a few episodes. Uh, they produce 
a number of hours per week. I think about six hours per week on average covering Alex Jones. And in a fairly detailed way, and it's not just they listen to the broadcasts, they do research to actually verify the claims. And I think that's kind of what probably underpins both your and my view, that Alex Jones does make a lot of stuff up because he doesn't tell consistent stories. I guess the question becomes, should we be doing some kind of charitable interpretation? Go, well, look, he might not be faking it. He might just be really, really bad at reasoning. Uh, I think to some extent, but sometimes it just seems to be so blatant. And And I think in a lot of ways... I think the 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 two hosts of knowledge of knowledge fight they kind of get they're pretty charitable and think that he's often sincere in what he's doing. Uh, I'm probably a little less charitable and think that you know that that he's either being insincere or just being vastly uh, you know uh, deficient in his <laughs> uh, fact checking of of himself. Uh, because it, I mean, it seems like a lot of what he does, uh, as depicted in uh, by the folks in Knowledge Fight, is that he will accurately often read a a headline, and then just totally make up what he imagines that headline, the article that that headline might have been associated with, as saying, right? And uh, and as you say, you know, he, he even changes day to day. Uh, you know, he'll quote back on a thing that he had discussed the day before, and then and just come up with completely new things. Uh, so. I mean, it's so blatant that it seems to be almost willful. Uh, but, but I think I think that is something that you know. When I was thinking about conspiracy theories twenty years ago, uh, there was a kind of a, I mean, I think a blanket kind of sincerity where people were often, you know, honestly trying to make sense of things, maybe making sense of things from an, an interesting point of view or a non-standard point of view or contrarian point of view. But nonetheless, making a full, you know, good faith effort to try to explain things and and then running into anomalous facts that just didn't fit in with the story and then using that as a way of kind of like putting together an alternative story. Uh, but it seems to me with people like Jones and, and a number of other uh, people in the more political sphere, uh, I mean, even preparing in advance uh, things that for, you know, explanations for events, I mean... You know, I think it's pretty clear that that um, Roger Stone had the stop the steal idea already lined up from the 2016 election, right? Assuming that they were going to lose that election and was already gearing up a, an account that the election was stolen and that it was rigged and everything else. And then lo and behold, they won that election. So that got shelved. And then it just came back off the shelf in a kind of a preformed sort of way in 2020. So when you have an entire kind of description and a story about the conspiracy behind uh, the stealing of the election that was seemed to have been set up for an election they ended up winning uh, four years earlier, that, again, points to a kind of an insincerity of like, yeah, this is more about getting a particular political point of view across or a political agenda across than it is in explaining uh, the facts uh, as as they see them. Now, I'm going to put my generalist hat on for a minute here, because you talked about how this might be a kind of recent thing. But I wonder, could we do the same analysis to, say, Bill Cooper, Alex Jones's obvious ancestor? I'm trying to work out the best way to put that. Not, re- not, not his literal ancestor, but the person that Alex Jones is kind of impersonating. Yep. Yep. Now, the problem with Looking back at Bill Cooper's stuff, is that most of his stuff is radio broadcasts, which are essentially ephemera. Unless someone recorded them, we don't really know what he was saying on a day by day basis. The problem for Alex Jones is that almost everything he's broadcast, at least in the last 10 years, is available for people to listen to again. So we're able to go and look. Alex Jones has always been making stuff up. It might have been the case that Bill Cooper was also doing exactly the same thing as maybe his predecessors did as well. But because we don't have the record, we can't make that kind of assertion. But with Alex Jones, it's fairly evident. We can see exactly what his modus operandi is. Yeah, I think the Bill Cooper, I mean, I think you're right that the Bill Cooper uh, predecessor or uh uh, you know, definitely that's the ancestor that 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 somebody like Alex Jones is working off of. 
And but I but I do think you know if you read, I mean, there has been a couple of uh, what's it called, Pale Horse Rider, uh, which is a biography of Bill Cooper. And at least as as that book lays out, right, the kind of interesting story about Bill Cooper is you know he he actually had a background in military intelligence, right, and early in his career, you know, he was kind of building off of this idea of like I saw certain documents that, you know, because I was in military intelligence and perhaps even I have possession of certain documents because I was in military intelligence and here's how they relate to what's going on today, right? And how they're, you know, they're evidence for a different kind of a story than perhaps what we're, what we're being led to, to believe. But then as, you know, at some point, if that's your source of evidence uh, for your uh, conspiracy theories, and then you're not getting a fresh supply, as it were. Like he, he, he was in the military for a certain period of time. He presumably can make a reasonable case that he saw certain documents circa 1967 to 1969 when he was serving in military intelligence. And that's going to be great for the early 1970s. But as you're, you know, as, as Cooper's career goes on and it's getting into the 80s and he's not, you know, hasn't, isn't getting new stuff, then he kind of has to shift gears. And that's when he starts to talk about stuff that wasn't part of his earlier story about, you know, now it's involving aliens and whatnot, uh, kind of goes back originally, you know, it, genetically it can be tied back to that earlier stuff, but he, you can only get so much out of that. And then you start to have to like, okay, well, what are going to be the new bases for my new conspiracy theories that I got to kind of keep the, the ball rolling as it were. And I like the way that, you know, Alex Jones kind of picks up, the the Bill Cooper idea. He's always constantly talking about the stacks and stacks of documents that I have on the desk here in front of me. He never actually shares any of these documents. Uh, you know, he 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 always promises to share them and he will make them all available. And one of the good things that Knowledge Fight tends to do is they show that when there is any kind of mention of an actual document, they actually kind of go and look it up and then often find that it, it simply doesn't contain the thing that Alex Jones suggested it, that it contained. But, you know, Alex Jones never had that. Like, he never had a history of military intelligence. He never had, you know, a source of actual documents that he oh, no, Brian, Brian. His father apparently was a very senior dentist who heard all sorts of things when people That's, went, yeah. Which, yeah. <laughs> which seems to be his his primary early intelligence sources. People told my dad. Yeah, yeah, that is true. Yeah, good point. Uh, although that usually wasn't document-based. It was, as you said, it was testimonial-based. Yeah from what his, what his father had said to him on secondhand information. Um, but yeah, I think in many ways, you know, and, and what's, I, I just heard a really nice piece recently of Bill, Bill Cooper uh, basically castigating the early Alex Jones. So there was a period of overlap where both Alex Jones was kind of at the beginning of his career uh, before the death of Bill Cooper towards the end of his career. Uh, and, Right, you know, Bill Cooper raking Alex Jones over the coals exactly for just simply making stuff up uh, and and contrasting himself with Alex Jones of like, you know, I'm giving you the real dirt because I was actually in military intelligence. And, you know, my documentation is there. This guy, Alex Jones, is just making stuff up uh, and uh, and just telling people, you know, don't believe a word he says. But of course, there's also that conflict of interest that it was clear that Alex Jones was starting to cut in on uh, the readership base or the listenership base of uh, somebody like Bill Cooper, uh, and then Bill Cooper ended up getting, you know, killed in a in a in a, a in confrontation with uh, the police, uh, and then that kind of left the field wide open for Alex Jones to just kind of push on with the same, you know, many ways the same kind of shtick, uh, but with with even less, you know basis for you know the documentation that is supposed to be laying behind it yeah i'm thinking of an analogy here with across the ponds alex jones one david ike who potentially because he was an establishment figure he was a footballer who then became a journalist for the bbc arguably he probably knew a little bit about the kind of machinations behind the scenes that was going on in the kind of power struggle that the BBC had with reporting certain stories and the government pressuring them to not report other things. That initially maybe some of his conspiratorial speculation might have been based upon things he heard in tea rooms whilst he was a reporter and then seems to have gone just ever so slightly further than maybe that evidence suggests. 
And so it kind of raises a kind of interesting question about did these people start off as conspiracy liars or were they actually sincere conspiracy theorists who, as you say, ran out of data and then had to keep an audience by making things up in what they presumably think is kind of, well, you know, it's fair game. It's, it's probably true. I mean, the other stuff I was reporting on was definitely true. And this this seems plausibly like something that those evil people would do as well. Yeah. I mean, the interesting comparison case is somebody like Edward Snowden, who also had access to all sorts of, of uh, documents, made them available, kind of behaved in a different way, did not, uh, you know, call on them themselves, but turned them over to legitimate uh, journalistic, in, uh, you know, sources, and then had them figure out what to do with it and how to publish it and so forth. But also there's the many ways in which Ed Snowden has kind of, you know, moved off of that, you know, that, that he's not continuing on as if he still has stories to tell about that stuff from now 15 you know, years ago. Uh, whereas, but he's not also trying to maintain a media empire the way that Bill Cooper or Alex Jones are trying to do. Uh, he doesn't, he's not in a position where he needs fresh new stuff to build conspiracy theories around. You know, he did his thing. He made his, you know, his, he, he built something based on the documents that he had, but now he no longer has access, right? And is you now no longer in the circle and, you know, in, in the sense has to be quiet or at least not spin new stuff. He can be kind of a, you know, he can be a general expert on what it's like to be the target of such kinds of uh, investigations. But there's a way in which Alex Jones, I think you're right, maybe, you know, it starts off as something sincere, uh, but then if you're going to keep it, the thing going right it's you know there's a point in when and when alex jones was you know mainly known for being in rather in different link letter movies where he's kind of just a performative ranter that is fun to turn a camera on and and have him kind of go off on uh fact free or at least uh fact limited uh conspiracy theories about things but you know it's kind of hard to turn that into a, a multi-million dollar career which is what uh, Jones seems to have ended up with. So this gets us back to the original question. How do we spot the difference between an Alex Jones and an Edward Snowden? Oh, I mean, I think some of it is just a put up or shut up, right? I mean, if if you have somebody who consistently says they have documents and then doesn't, doesn't actually share them, or as you were pointing to before, if somebody's evidence is, well, I heard that, right? And it's another trope that, that uh, you know, that that Alex Jones likes to push all the time of like, I, I'm on the phone for several hours every morning talking to top, top generals. generals are calling me every day. I've got this, I've got a, a sweet line to the White House. Uh, the General Whithouse was with me just this morning. I was eating breakfast with him. So you have these testimony, which then, you know, then the lack of data or lack of actual documentation is like, well, I'm not going to be recording my phone conversations with these people that are calling me up. Uh, I mean, I've often wondered if it would be possible to kind of hire a, a private investigator to follow Alex Jones around and then try to kind of line up. It's like, well, we've accounted for his, you know, his whereabouts pretty much everywhere. Yet he said he spent four or five hours this morning, you know, reading these documentations. And he also spent a couple hours on the phone talking to people. You know, we saw him at a coffee shop the entire time or or <laughs> out in public and whatnot. It's like we can't account for his time. It doesn't seem like an appropriate alibi. Uh, that's kind of a you know, kind of fantasy of trying to figure out, like, can you make sense of the time that he claims he's spending doing things? Because uh, he's not providing us with anything documentation. He's just reporting what he claims to have heard. Actually, that, that's a really clever idea. Surely some of the lawyers behind the Sandy Hook stuff must have at least thought of surveilling Alex Jones using a private detective to see exactly how he spends his time. Or even just having that be the source of, like, what do you do when you flip somebody on the inside? It's like, yeah, can you just give me a rundown of what he's been doing on the last, you know, week? You know, where where was he? Who was he talking to? You know, if he was on the phone the entire time, then that would be evidence. That maybe he's right. He really is talking to uh, high level generals and ad, uh, Air Force commanders. Uh, but if he's and, and, he, and if he's sitting there and staring at a screen, then maybe he really is reading documents. Uh, but sometimes it seems like he's, you know, got some people feeding him some memes and giving him headlines. Because, you know, it's a lot of work to, as an academic, I can tell you, reading papers, it's a lot of work. It takes a lot of a lot of time, uh, especially if you're going to absorb it and kind of be able to say something interesting about the, the documents. If all I had to do was read the headlines in PubMed and then kind of, you know, make up stories about what those headlines were saying, 
you know, that make, make life a lot easier. Yeah, actually, reviewing papers would be a lot easier if you reviewed them only on, say, the title and the abstract. Yeah. I suppose the problem, of course, is a lot of this conspiracy liar stuff is retrospective. So we know an awful lot about Alex Jones. We've got a long history of people looking into the work of Alex Jones, looking into the work of people like Bill Cooper and David Icke. And... We've also got a bit of history looking into people like, say, Tucker Carlson and looking at the kind of motivations and the way that they work. But what do we do when we encounter a new labeled conspiracy theorist for the first time? How do we make that distinction? Uh, yeah, I think you just have to look at the evidence that they are presenting. Or it's like, you know, uh, if, if somebody is saying, you know, I've got a theory about everything, how a particular event happened. Then again, it's a put up or shut up. Like, okay, well, what what are the dots that you're connecting, uh, and what are the evidence that those dots are accurate? Uh, and you know, if, if they're just drawing on news sources, then let's look at news sources. Uh, or they, you know, like as we see with sometimes with Alex Jones, where you know they'll give you a headline, but then if you look at the actual paper the article that the headline is a headline too it ends up saying the exact opposite of what uh, he claimed you know, the dot is that needs to be connected. So, I mean, I think we're, we're back to show us, show us the evidence. And if somebody is not presenting evidence or is saying that the evidence is something that, you know, I can't tell you because it's, you know, secret, um, you know, then, you know, at some point you're like, well, come back to me when you've got something you can share. Um, I mean, we saw recently, you know, with, the person who's trying to claim the $5 million, I think it is from Mike Lindell about, you know, Hey, I've got this. Uh, evidence yeah. For, yeah. For the, the person who pointed out that the data inside the file is basically just cryptographic nonsense. Yes. Or just perhaps is gibberish. All right. Yeah. And, and doesn't even have the right form. Like it doesn't even look like the kinds of files that you would expect from, you know, the, if, if it is the evidence that it's purported to be, then you would expect to find certain kind of metadata in it that, that he's simply not finding. And that's how he thinks he can make the argument is like, yeah, I've, I've actually done the stronger thing to show that this cannot be the evidence in favor of the, of the claim that you're making. Uh, you know, and that person, you know, trying to make the case for that saying, yeah, I'm going to actually look at the evidence that you've presented and, you know, and then finding it lacking. Although that, of course, raises a new issue, because I was, I, was, I was about to take us down the generalism particulars route, given that all the sort of evidence seems to indicate we need to be evaluating conspiracy theories on the evidence, which is a standard particulars claim. But the Michael Lindell thing, I think, throws a bit of a spanner in the work, because it seems fairly evident that Mike Lindell himself was conned into thinking that the packet of information he had was evidence of an election being stolen. So he sincerely believes this file contains within it all the information necessary to prove that actually Trump won the last election. So he was conned and is now sincerely pursuing this con, even though actually it turns out he was conned in the first place. Use the word con there three times in various connotations, but we all we all know what I'm trying to say in my slightly jet lag state. Yeah, and I think the lying doesn't actually have to be, or the falsehoods do not have to be actually generated by the person who's creating the belief. Uh, they are also, you know, the 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 you know the lie may be generated by somebody else that you simply are uh, picking up on. And not, you know, doing due diligence to make sure that the evidence that's being claimed to you is actually evidence of the sort that's being claimed. Um, so that so. would make someone like Kelly Conway a conspiracy liar as well. So even if she's standing at the White House podium, acting as a press secretary, delivering lines given to her by someone like, about say, Alex Jones, by Donald Trump. Even if she sincerely believes the commander-in-chief and president of the United States, she's still engaging in the kind of conspiracy liar mentality. Perhaps, although, yeah, I think, you know, Kellyanne Conway might be somebody who's a different case altogether in that, that I don't even know if, I mean, when somebody, I mean, because what I'm suggesting is there's an alternative to conspiracy theorizing explanation as opposed to conspiracy theorizing as agenda pushing. Uh, I think, you know, Kellyanne Conway is an agenda pusher from day one, right? I mean, like there's, I don't think she ever sincerely suggests that 
hey, I've got a conspiracy that I want to sell you on. She's like, no, I want certain politicians to be elected and I want certain policies to be brought about. And, you know, in in politics and in war, everything is, you know, all's fair. Uh, and then you just push whatever you want to push. I mean, that's, again, if Alex Jones is simply a political operative of the sort that Kellyanne Conway is, and by the way, as Roger Stone is, right, they're just trying to make certain political things happen. Uh, and if you lie on the behalf of that, well, fine, it's that's, that's just the world that we're, you know, that they're in. Uh, they're not sincerely offering theories of ex- that are explanatory in nature. It's just propaganda. Uh, and, and I think, I think that's just going to be in a separate category. So maybe that's it. It's like, how do you tell, it's not, how do you tell whether a conspiracy theory is legitimate or not? This is asking, like, how do you tell the difference between conspiracy theories and propaganda? Because we, we used to live in a time where conspiracy theory and propaganda were in two different lanes and two different phenomena. Uh, whereas now, and this is maybe something that's happened since the first, you know, the circle back to the first of the uh, Joe Yusinski's University of Miami things, uh, is that there's a way in which now conspiracy theories just are of a piece with propaganda, or at least certain sus- subsets of conspiracy theories are just propagandists. Because I think when LZ Granderson says, you know, Alex Jones is no kind of a theorist, what he's saying is he's a propagandizer, which is just a different, you know, a, a different agenda, a different uh, set of goals. Yeah, so they're using conspiracy lies in order mm-hmm. to further a political goal. Yeah. And it could, you know, in, in, you know, knowing our history of philosophy, right, there's, you know, there's Socrates and the philosophers on the one hand and the sophist on the other, right? And the goal of the sophist is to convince people of certain things, truth be damned, whereas, you know, Socrates and the philosophers, Plato and others, are on the other side of things like, no, the thing that we're interested in is pursuing the truth, pursuing wisdom, uh, trying to get things right, uh, where, and, and criticizing sophistry for simply being about getting certain, you know, agendas met and convincing people of things. And yeah, that's a different, are you trying to convince people of things or are you trying to explain things? Those are not, you know, they don't go hand in hand. So talking about sophistry, you've given this paper at two conferences, the Miami conference and the Amsterdam conference. How did it go down in each venue? I think, well, you know, both the, the, I think the, the the context for both is a little different. Uh, things go a little faster in Miami. We had a lot of papers, people. I mean, I think it was even like a 15 minutes for presentation, a couple of minutes for, for questions. Uh, I mean, I think it was fairly well received, uh, but there was, it, it was much for faster pace in terms of like just getting material out there. Um, and also, many of the audience were not philosophers. Uh, I mean, in fact, I'm pretty sure all the philosophers are pretty much sitting on the stage with me at that particular session. Uh, and you know, I got some interesting feedback from from Martin Beaudry and uh, and and, uh, and Andrew. Uh, but uh, I mean, I feel like the in uh, Amsterdam, I had a little bit more time to present it. Uh, got a little bit more in and feedback from other people, and there was a way in which it tied in with what other people were doing. Uh, you know, so uh, you know, we got the reaction of other people, kind of, you know, name checking the argument that I was making in later papers because it kind of fit in with the kind of philosophical stuff that they were interested in talking about, which didn't really happen so much in Miami because the people that were following me were not philosophers, so they were like, "Yeah, this is interesting. I like the idea." Uh, or in some cases, of course, <laughs> yeah, that's just obviously what's going on, uh, particularly if you're coming at conspiracy theories from a political science perspective or from a, a media studies perspective. That's like, yeah, that's obviously what Alex Jones is and people like that are trying to do. Uh, it's, you know, maybe f- you know, only philosophers that are kind of focused on this kind of philosophy of science perspective. That is where, you know, we kind of started off talking about this stuff that 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 seems to need more of a you know commentary. Yeah, so something quite wonderfully synergistic about the Amsterdam conference with people building not only on prior work, but making references to papers given at the conference, going, well, you know, as X has said, we can follow this particular line, which suggests a nice thriving research community within philosophy around conspiracy theory theory. 
as someone who went to the Miami conference, do you feel that there's much interdisciplinary work going on in the wider conspiracy theory theory world? I mean, I think so, because I think there's a way in which, you know, the, the, I mean, the philosophers have our particular set of concerns and things that are kind of motivating us. Um, and I think just it's a broader set of concerns that are, are kind of on the table with more interdis- interdisciplinary work. And, you know, and I think partly because of the audience there was a much more social science oriented audience uh, and participants uh, there at the, the workshop. And so I got the impression there was much, you know, kind of much more interplay between between them. Um, and, and even, you know, because of the, you know, there were only, like I said, in the end, only two or three of us there from philosophy out of about 45 or so people that were there all together, um, you know, kind of, you know, diluted our voice in a way and, and made it less, you know, we were just, we were the minority there in terms of the kind of things that we were interested in and things that we were pushing, but things were very vibrant in terms of what the political scientists, what the social scientists and others were kind of dealing with, uh, and I think interacting with one another in, in, in useful sorts of ways. So what are you working on next? If indeed you're working on anything conspiracy theory related. Yeah, I need to finish writing up this paper and and kind of get it to the point. It's, it's pretty close to being, you know, ready for prime time to send around to you and to some folks that were at both of the conferences, people that showed an interest in it and, and get that feedback. And then uh, after that, there's another, you know, my day job is more looking at things in philosophy of neuroscience. Uh, and there's another workshop that's coming up in September that I need to get an abstract together with before uh, July 1st. So that's what I'm working on at the current moment and not even sure what I'm going to do for that yet. Uh, but at the moment, I'm just kind of coming off of a period of time where I was been getting a lot of administrative work done at my college. So uh, on the committee that does all the tenuring and hiring at my college and we we had six tenure cases this past year and we hired five new tenure track professors and I'll be on the committee again next year. I won't be chairing it next year, but we will have a couple of more tenure cases and promotions and hiring probably another four people, including hopefully hiring a new philosopher. So that, um, you know, most of the hiring that I've been doing has been other parts of the college, not uh, philosophy per se, but uh, uh, that's kind of cut into my, my research time. Uh, and, uh, Certainly, I kind of come up with another another thing to kind of think about in terms of conspiracy theories, and haven't quite hit upon on on that yet. I mean, have you thought about getting funding to stick probes in the brains of conspiracy theorists to see exactly what's going on in there, if anything at all? Um, well, I think, I mean, we I do have a colleague here who works in experimental philosophy who does a lot of uh, survey work, but in particular, he's interested in survey work where you don't just give people a you know a a Google Turk survey and give a Likert scale reaction to different kinds of things, but to kind of drill down a little bit more, it's called the talk aloud method, which is a method that's used in more qualitative social psychology, where you kind of drill down and talk to people and have them kind of talk out loud about their reasoning behind giving survey responses and keep thinking that might be an interesting thing to do to kind of replicate some of the work that's been done in social psychology around conspiracy theories. And then, but using this talk aloud method to kind of, get people to talk more out loud about what it is that they're thinking through and why they gave the answers that they gave and how did they read the question? Uh, Cause that's often, I think an important thing that, that we kind of overlook when we're just kind of getting some P values out of uh, Likert scales. Yes. This is something that Martin Orr and Shina Husting and I have talked about. It'd be great to do some discourse and analysis actually sits down with people, both who believe and don't believe conspiracy theories and elicit their rationales rather than simply relying on kind of umbrella terms and then trying to infer, well, you said you, you moderately agree with this claim, but what does that actually mean? Does that mean you think it's likely to be true or you think it's just plausible enough that you want to entertain? It would be very useful to have that kind of discourse to find out exactly why people reason the way they do rather than relying on these kind of umbrella or abstract terms, which often play the role of conspiracy theories in the academic literature, but probably don't resemble what people actually believe. Yeah. Yeah. And I think also kind of, you know, 
trying to broaden it in that we, you know, we tend to focus on right wing conspiracy theories, but, you know, figuring out a way of also including people from across the political spectrum, because as we know, you know, conspiracy theories are something that is, is seen across the board, as well as conspiracy theories that are quite plausible that we ought to believe in. Uh, be nice to kind of include all of those uh, instead of the kind of focus on the, the ones that uh, are more, you know, clearly out of the gate problematic, right? You know, it's to get that kind of full spectrum of conspiracy thinking. Well, yes. I mean, when you mention conspiracy theories, we ought to believe it would have been really quite fascinating to have a talk aloud or discourse analysis of the people who believed there were weapons of mass destruction being created by the Saddam Hussein regime to see how their reasoning worked as to why they believed the official come conspiracy theory of that event. Yep. I agree. You know, there's a lot of fruitful work to be done, which I think is the thing which is most exciting about the conference is I came away with more ideas than I went going into it, which is on one level, great. On another level means that my list of things to do has now got immensely longer and it was very long to start with. Yes, that's true. There's just too much to read. Yes, that's true. And if, and if we were Alex Jones's, we wouldn't have to worry about that. We could just get our RSS feed to give us the headlines from all the websites we like to look at, and then we could draw our own conclusions from it. What a sweet life that would be. That would be indeed. And then we could get sued for all sorts of weird claims we made online and then owe billions of dollars to people in some cases we've never met but we have lied about quite frequently. So yes, is there any slander you want to commit before we we bring this interview to to a close? Anything you want to get get into trouble for? I think I'll I'll just keep my head down as usual, and uh, I'm actually maybe circle back to the 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 long the conspiracy theories involving a long dead people. So uh, kind of keep keep that on the down low. Make as many claims about Julius Caesar as you please, but try and stay clear of the twentieth and twenty first century. Sounds right to me. Well, thank you, Brian. Once again, an illuminating chat, and hopefully we'll talk again soon. Sounds great. Take care. And there you have it. So, yes, uh, in, 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 uh, just, to, just to completely um, negate the point of the opening sketch, I have listened to that interview all the way through. Um, I, I do now feel that I have to go and listen to the, the, the talk that Brian gave at your conference because it does sound like an interesting one. I assume that the focus of his talk was this idea of, of, of the people like the Alex Joneses who may or may not actually believe what they're saying at all and are just putting out conspiracy theories to make money or further a cause or something. Is that the, was that the, the focus of it? Yeah, so it's, it's all based around a piece in the press in the US where someone, you know, went, you know, Alex Jones is no kind of theorist and then we kind of itemize the ways in which Alex Jones is a insincere grifter. Actually, I suppose actually all grifters are insincere, so that's a bit of a tautology. Yeah. Are there are there sincere grifters? Are there grifters who well, are... Well, I mean, that, 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 that I mean, was the, part of what the, you guys the, were talking what, about. And yes, also, some people have seem to... The royal family appear to be very sincere grifters. They really do believe mm. they are better than anyone else, and because of that, other people should pay for their existence. So that's a kind of sincere grifting, which I don't appreciate, I don't like, but I do understand on the notion that there are some people out there who have very wacky beliefs about the superiority of their bloodlines. Mm. Well, I mean, yeah, in, in the interview just now, you guys talked about, um, like, who did you, what was the example that Mike Lindell, the pillow guy, was it? Who, oh, yes, pillow did, man. Did, did, did appear to genuinely, or at least it seemed possible that he genuinely believed some of his stuff, which could make him a genuine grifter, or maybe he is just a grifty and there's a, another... Another insincere grifter behind him, I don't know. Fun fact, The Pillow Man is one of the worst plays I've ever seen. Really? Yeah. It's yeah. Been, been getting good reviews, I've heard. Well, no, so I mean, I mean, yeah. yeah, so admittedly, The Pillow Man that I saw was a production at the Maidment almost 10 years ago. Uh -huh. And you could tell it wasn't very good because half of the audience walked away during the intermission in part because they thought the play had ended, not realising it was a play in two acts. 
and that's kind of telling when the audience go, oh, that's 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 that narrative over and done, done with. Time to go home without being at all curious by the fact that it's an intermission and maybe there's going to be slightly more. Mm. Uh, also starred Craig Parker in a leading role. And Craig Parker has never been El Toro's finest actor. He's largely coasted on Lord of the Rings, and it's kind of telling. Mm. But yes, there's a new production of it on at the moment with Lily Allen in the lead role. And, well, she uh, has taken a turn things. for the actoring mm, ever has. since she got together with David Harbour. Mm. I have no idea why we're talking about this now. Oh, because we talked about Mike people. Lindell, yes. the pillow guy. Yes. Just saying the, the, I mean, he based himself on a terrible play and understandably it doesn't work. Mm. But, but, but yes, so, so sorry, there was a paper that talked about people being grifters and sincere or otherwise, or an article, and Brian's talk is based on that? Well, yeah, so there was this piece, and I'm not going to try to pronounce the journalist's name because I'm going to get it completely wrong because I haven't got it written down. As, as I say, he makes a claim that Alex Jones is no kind of theorist, and Brian's just basically going through that, look, there are particular issues to do with conspiracy theorists, and we have to be aware that not every person who claims to be a conspiracy theorist is engaging in the intellectual activity of conspiracy theorizing. Some people really are using the rhetoric of conspiracy theory to labor other points, whether it is being a political ideologue, making money from selling pigs' urine and the like. And so... If we're going to use them as examples of the problems to do with conspiracy theories and conspiracy theorizing generally, then we need to be aware that not everything which is marked out as a conspiracy theory and not everything which is marked out, not everyone who is marked out as a conspiracy theorist is actually deserving of those labels. Mm. So yes, if like me, you're interested to know more about this topic, you can go to Eames YouTube channel where your username is just Conspiracism, is it not? I think the username is Conspiracist, so the channel's called Conspiracism. The username is Conspiracist because by the time YouTube, as people will be aware, YouTube went through this thing of going away from random ID numbers to actual channel names. And they did it by basically releasing tranches of names to people at particular points. By the time they came to my poxy little channel, someone else had already taken the username Conspiracism. So even though I am Conspiracism, my technical YouTube username is Conspiracist. Mm. Well, there we go. So at any rate, find find uh, M's Conspiracist uh, Conspiracism YouTube channel by fear means or foul, uh, and so you'll be what, able to find by, what by what foul means could someone find a YouTube channel? Uh, I don't know. Paying a private investigator to stand over you while you sleep and divine your username from your from your nocturnal mutterings or something. I don't know. So this so this so this private investigator are they sending over you as you sleep or me as I sleep? I would imagine you. Or, 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 you know, tapping your most intimate communications to find out the name of your YouTube channel or things like that. Anyway, I'm looking at your YouTube channel right now. As you, you're right, your username is at Conspiracist. And there, there, there I see uploaded uh, nine days ago at time of recording the talk from Brian L. Keeley, Conspiracy theorists are not the problem. Conspiracy liars are. So there you go. Look that yep. up if you want to know more. It is true, everything you just said. I will not deny it. So, at just over 10 minutes of recording, we're done for all we need to do. And when I say we're, I mean, for all I need to do, you've already done the work of interviewing Brian and putting that together. Uh, we're basically done for this week's main episode, but of course there is a bonus episode for our beloved patrons that we'll have to do. Uh, we're going to talk about an interesting email that we received the other day. We have an email address. Um, M's little little outro thingy does mention it, but I'm pretty sure it's podcastconspiracy at gmail.com. Mostly it's used by people who've sort of, you know, done some automated 
data scraping thing and found any podcast that sounds like it might have something to do with them and 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 send us thing. Where could we get things like, do you want to interview this this crazy person or read this crazy person's book? Uh, we have an email along those lines that we want to discuss with you, our not crazy patrons. Yes, because this this email makes some some assumptions, which some interesting, may be questionable. Yeah. Mm, mm. Uh, but we'll also talk about the latest Jeffrey Epstein developments. He's still dead, but other things have happened. A bit of other stuff. Uh, that, that 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 submarine that imploded, going to see the Titanic. There's been conspiracy theories around that. You'll be amazed. Still imploded. Still imploded. Mm, it is also still imploded. And a bit of other stuff. But anyway, the point is, the point is, if you'd like to listen to that and you're a patron, well, then you can, and you probably already know that by now. But if you'd like to listen to that and you're not a patron, you can sign yourself up by going to betrayon.com and searching for the podcast's guide to the conspiracy, and then you'll have access to this bonus episode we're about to record, plus all of the other ones we've already recorded, plus any other ones we record from now until the end of time. Magic. It is. It is a kind of magic. It's literal magic. But for now, that is the end of this main episode. So uh, before we before we hang up, change rooms, and go to record the bonus episode, I'm going to round things out with a, a good, 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 solid helping of goodbye. Goodbye, 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 goodbye. Neat. The podcast's Guide to the Conspiracy stars Josh Addison and myself, Associate Professor M.R.X. Denton. Our show's cons- Sorry. Producers are Tom and Philip, plus another mysterious anonymous donor. You can contact Josh and myself at podcastconspiracy at gmail.com, and please do consider joining our Patreon. And remember, Soylent Green is Meeple's.